This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace while maximizing our impact on the world around us. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how we can cultivate our success on our own terms. Many ambitious people really believe, those of us who, you know, aspire to success, that that success requires being on 24-7, tirelessly networking, deal-making, being in the public eye. Um, but our guest today, Maura Aaron Mealy, is proof that you don't have to be that intense, highly social, sleep-deprived person to have a sustainable and rewarding career. In fact, she knows that you don't and is a shining example of a self-aware introvert skilled in self-care, who manages to do things like run online campaigns for Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Malala Fund, while often working from her bed and on her own schedule. Her new book is called Hiding in the Bathroom, an introvert's roadmap to getting out there when you'd rather stay home. It's for those of us who have a harder time putting ourselves out there while still needing and wanting to be in the game, and the employers and managers amongst us who want to help the talented introverts on our teams work happy while working well. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we really welcome your call. Join in the conversation and bring your questions to Mara, especially the introverts out there who we know are quietly listening. We really would love to hear from you. So just give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Or if, as Mara suggests, you're more comfortable with email, you can write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. I'm super excited about Maura's joining us on the show today, but before we get started, I want to tell you a little bit more about her. She's the founder of the award-winning social impact agency Women Online and the Missionless, a social change influencer database. Her experience spans politics and the private sector, including work on presidential campaigns and with Fortune 50 clients. During the 2004 election, Mora was the director of Internet Marketing for the Democratic National Committee, after which she founded Edelman's Digital Public Affairs team. Since then, she founded Women Online with a client list that now includes Obama for America, UN Women, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Malala Fund, Care.com, and the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation. Oh, and Hillary Clinton for President 2016. In her role as a blogger on women, politics, and work, she's covered events from the White House to the campaign trail to Harvard Law School. And now she's added published author to her list of accomplishments with her new book, Hiding in the Bathroom, an introvert's roadmap to getting out there when you'd rather stay at home. So with that, Mara, welcome to Women at Work. Hi, Laura. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, when I saw your websites, both for Women Online and your personal site, Women in Work, I was blown away by a couple of things. And it's not just how beautifully designed they are. They really are gorgeous. Um, the importance of the projects you work on really struck me. And that it seemed like at the same time, there's a, a kind of common set of values that all the organizations share. And I was wondering, to what degree is your work a personal form of activism? Well, I feel blessed, honestly, that my work 
is a personal form of activism. And that is a very deliberate choice that has evolved over almost 20 years. It wasn't always thus, <laughs> although I, I was very lucky. Um, you know, I graduated during the Bill Clinton years when um, the economy was booming and the Internet was just starting. And so I, I was very fortunate uh, in that it was easy for me to get a job and keep getting jobs. And I really got in on the Internet and especially the Internet community boom early. When I was about 23 years old, I flew up. I was working at iVillage.com, which sadly is no longer with us. It was for many, many years the biggest site for women online. It truly revolutionized everything about online community, founded by two amazing women. And they sent me up to Buffalo to interview Hillary Clinton, who was running for senator of New York in the 2000 election, and I was a kid, but whatever, I got on a plane <laughs> and I sat with Hillary Clinton in the bedroom, spare bedroom of her best friend from Wellesley, who lived in Buffalo, and helped her get online to do a chat, an online town hall with the women of iVillage.com. So this was in 1999. This was a big deal. Yeah, this was not a common this first of all it was not common that as professionals we were thinking about how to use the internet to engage never mind that it was a visible feature of campaigns correct absolutely i mean john mccain did really the first online fundraising and that was also in this election 2000 um al gore did as well but this stuff was in its infancy and remember we had message boards back then i mean twitter and facebook (laughs) were not even a glint in anyone's eye um But that moment, 25,000 women logged on, and they asked Hillary... In real time, in that moment? In real time, I swear. Then? 25,000 women. It was amazing. It had to have been. Did it just give you goosebumps, or were you terrified? Well, I was terrified. I was like 23 years old sitting next to Hillary Clinton on a bed. You know, (laughs) we barely had dial... You know, it was just a little bit past (laughs) dial-up. Um. But it was amazing, and and I count that as one of the truly formative experiences in my life. And after that, there was always this sort of idea in the back of my head that there was something powerful about when women got online and used community. So fast forward, um, you know, about seven years later, I was working in Washington on K Street. We've heard a lot about K Street. I've never been a registered lobbyist, but I was sort of as close as you could be. I did a lot of online persuasion campaigns for corporate interests. I learned a ton. I consulted for Walmart, and that was honestly one of the best professional experiences of my life, working inside this giant corporation, which whose values did not really match mine, and certainly not my labor organizer dad. But, um, <laughs> what made it such a great experience? Honestly, getting to go inside a corporation like that, and really go inside because we were in Bentonville, Arkansas, uh, at their HQ, and see how it worked, and then trying to figure how to layer on, again, online communication, online community. This was, this was the age of blogs. This was now in 2005 when blogging was the most powerful way to reach people. And so uh, when Hurricane Katrina happened, 
one of the things that Walmart did that we helped work on was help them create a blog to post in real time the work that Walmart was doing in New Orleans, which was really groundbreaking work and much better than the feds, you might imagine. <laughs> so again, I, I was so lucky in that I saw these moments where online activism, social change, and people's personal voice all met, right? That is the common thread of my career. The downside is I worked for a lot of K Street interests that I was not a fan of. And so I sort of thought, I'm done with this. I didn't think I was going to start a company. We can talk about that later. I thought I was actually (laughs) going to go to social work school and be a social worker. But as I emerged from a fog a couple of years later, I realized I'm going to make this my living. I am going to work with clients who want to help change the world. They know women are the way to do it, and they know they need to use the Internet. And that was really the, the sort of founding principles of my beautiful company, Women Online. It's it's amazing to hear the way that you talk about that. It makes so real for us what that experience was like. And while I could ask you 100 questions about Hillary, what I really am going to focus on right now is – you kind of glossed over just now that journey between, you know, you're doing a lot of really um, valuable professional work because of what it's teaching you. You're clearly earning a living and you're in the mix and you're getting opportunities to do more and more work. And then fast forward, you get to a point where you say, like, enough, I'm not compromising on this front anymore and I'm going to start my own business. How did you build the bridge so that you could still eat and have a roof over your head? <laughs> I, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, I think like many women. Um, the thing that I will say is you said in the mix, and I think something that is maybe unusual about me, certainly compared to many of the people I know who are overachievers, is that I learned at a young age that I was not cut out to be in the mix in a primary role. Mm-hmm. It was against my temperament. It, I'm too anxious. It makes me too stressed out. I can't deal with the demands. Again, you talked about always on. You know, for me to have been a true leader, either if I had stayed sort of in the corporate world doing marketing with companies like Walmart or even if I had stayed in politics, yeah. I would have had to be always on. I would have had to deal, negotiate, schmooze, manage people day in and day out. I would not have been able to work in my bed in my sweats like I do now. <laughs> right. It's the it's the opposite extreme. When totally. I was serving as a dean of a small art school, I realized when I went to the supermarket, I wasn't just me or my daughter's mother. I was still the dean walking through the supermarket aisles, and I was often interacting. I had no choice but to remember that that was the case when I interacted with, say, board members or donors right. who I stumbled upon. Like, there was no such thing as ever being off, never mind working at home in your pajamas. Right. And it was and, very know, stressful. It's so stressful. You know, I talked to a CEO of a tech company on my book tour a couple of weeks ago, and she said she, she runs this quite large company. It's all glass. It's beautiful. She has an office, but it's all glass. Everyone watches her all day because they want to know what she's thinking. And she said, the only time I can be me and get a moment's privacy at work is in the bathroom stall. But then even then, she walks out of the stall, she sees her employee. <laughs> right. You can't hide. You can't hide. And so I credit, there was some self-preservation instinct in me that realized that while I probably technically could try to ascend to those levels of leadership, 
I would be miserable and I'd probably, frankly, get pushed out or fail because I wouldn't be adept at dealing with the politics or the, you know, need for presenteeism. And I quit. And that's, in a way, sort of as a feminist, it makes me feel like I'm letting down the side a little bit, you know, because I was one of those, quote, high potential women. Uh, I chose instead to sort of lean out. But it was the right thing for me. And that's partially why I wanted to write the book. You know, we can't all be in the corner office. We, we have to sometimes define our own success, especially if, you know, like me, it was making me depressed, anxious, miserable, drinking too much. I, I could go on. So there are a couple things that I want to explore a little bit with you. One is that marvelous term presenteeism. <laughs> Tell me what you mean by that. <laughs> I have this character in my head. When I talk about it, I call him Jim from Sales. And so Jim from Sales is awesome. He's always in the office. He's always up for another drink at happy hour. He takes his clients out. He golfs with them on Saturdays. He's like always there. And he's happy about it. And so the boss thinks he's super ambitious, right? Because he's like always there. First in, last out, never gets tired, always up for another round. Jim from sales. <laughs> right. That's presenteeism, right? FaceTime, sometimes we call it too. Especially in, in business and in marketing and sales functions, which often then become leadership functions, there's this sense that ambition means showing up, mm-hmm. right? You right. never think that the person who works from home two days a week is the person who's dying to make partner. Right. And, and in fact, we're sort of conditioned to think that, which I'm gathering is part of the problem. I think it's a huge problem. And, and we know that it's a huge problem when we try and look at, um, in particular, helping people who have family responsibilities, whether that's women with children, men with young children who are trying to be engaged parents, um, adults who are taking care of ill older parents, um, that having the ability to... Removing the pressure to always be present but enabling you to do your work is critical to helping these people stay in the workforce. That's right. And and, and there's endless data. In fact, everyone in the work-life field, right, yes. your colleagues, I mean, they're, they're all like, enough with the data. Like, this makes sense. But But I want to push back on that, Laura, because while that is so important and the numbers on caregiving are staggering, especially as baby boomers get older. I mean, uh, you know, there's just reams of data that show that, you know, the sandwich generation is going to be missing work. Forget their young kids. It's going to be taking care of their older parents. parents. That's all all true. I believe, I mean, I, I quit corporate life before I had kids. I was not even married. Some people, many people, need flexibility because they will do their work better. And you know, I'm glad you that you pushed back on it because it's a critically important point that having nothing to do with the additional obligations that are on us, it's part of helping us thrive as individuals and maximizing the talent that's in the workplace. I mean, since when, again, just to sound like a broken record, I was talking about this (laughs) this morning with Callie Yost, who's a great workplace strategist, you know, since when, again, did showing up that uber sense of collaboration, right? Collaborating is everything right now at work. All of these sort of intensely present, intensely on, intensely responsive, intensely reactive tendencies mean that you were 
gunning for the biggest job, that you were the most ambitious, that you were the best worker, right? As long as we are stuck in this paradigm where that's the best worker, the ideal worker. Yes, and especially that last part. Right, that that equals best. Right. Right. That's bull, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. oh. It's so true. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Loris Arrow, and I'm talking with Maura Ahrens Mealy, who's the author of Hiding in the Bathroom, an introvert's roadmap to getting out there when you'd rather stay at home. If you want to join in the conversation or you have a question for how to navigate your own introversion in the workplace, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also email us. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-786. And our email is businessradio at SiriusXM111. So, Maura, there was something else that you said before that I also want to probe a little bit. Not sure if I'm pushing back or not, but I certainly want to probe it. When I was, when I was reading the book and I was reading about this idea of leaning out that you mentioned before, there was something that struck me um, every time I read it because I understood the premise, which is instead of going – Full steam ahead, being as ambitious as you possibly can, because, yes, we want to see as many women thriving and leading in the workplace. What you're describing to me doesn't feel like leaning out as much as it is doing it on your own terms. It's actually, I think what you're advocating for is avoiding binary choices of being in or out. Is that fair to say? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that many of us our visceral reaction to lean in, which is no diss on Sheryl Sandberg because she's an incredibly accomplished woman, is that it feels binary because the opposite of leaning in is leaning out, right? And many of us feel like if we leaned in anymore, we'd fall over. <laughs> but right, but we, we can't totally lean out. Um, we have financial response. I mean, I've got to put three kids through college, right? So <laughs> right. to me, it's, it's sort of about leaning in less and also rejecting the binary, which, which is the same thing as saying, you know, work from home isn't just for mommies and daddies, right? I mean, right. It's, about, it's about what works best for individual work workers and workplaces. You know, again, Callie Yost talks about workplace fit. She hates the term work-life balance. It's workplace, work-life fit. And it's like a snowflake. Everyone has a different one. And I love that. Some people are workaholics and they are thrilled to be. Right. <laughs> I, I have clients whose kids have left home, right? They're empty nesters. And they are so excited because they can just work all the time. They're like, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And yeah. then I know like, 26-year-olds who are like, meh, I don't want to work that hard. Fine. And, and for a lot of us, or at least for me personally, there's an ebb and a flow where I find that I go through um, periods of time where um, I'm, I don't want to stop working and I have mm-hmm. to make myself stop. And then I go through other periods of time where I so desperately need to be alone and recharge and mm-hmm. feel myself differently and not engage socially um, that I had part of what I've had to learn and what I so appreciated in reading the book was that you made me feel like that's not crazy. What's crazy about that, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't you, when you think about the good work that has been done historically, is it always done in a large meeting room with people shouting? (laughs) Rarely. (laughs) In fact, a lot of what we've talked about recently here on the show is in an effort to try and figure out how can we hear each other? How can we create better solutions? You know, we think we want diverse voices, diverse minds on a problem. But when everybody's in a room screaming at each other, that rarely produces the answer. Individual work is critical to it. That's 100% right. Because honestly, it's wonderful to have a diverse team. But if the model is one of extremely extroverted, large, 
shouting match brainstorming meetings, that diversity is not going to shine through at all, to your point. Right. And that um, introversion versus extroversion is another form of cognitive and emotional diversity. Mm -hmm. And to be able to remember to make a place for the people in on your team, in your community, who you want what they can bring to the table, but they need to bring it forth in quiet and protected places. It's it's almost as if we have to change our language for what a workplace looks like. I think we have to change everything about what a workplace looks like. <laughs> but, you know, that's why I haven't worked for anyone else in eleven years. I mean, I, I also I also just think that the and and as much as I I you know respect all the literature on introversion, and I'm not a doctor or a psychologist. Introversion isn't always about being quiet. Many introverts aren't quiet. Many introverts are very happily giving forthright opinions in groups. I think that the common thing that we need to think about is, like you said, that energy of being alone, Mm -hmm. building in time and quiet space to reflect, taking a break from being always on. You know, an ambitious introvert could go and kill in a meeting or in a pitch, but then need to go like be alone for two hours. And so I think that it's about, again, the ebb and flow of the day, Mm -hmm. building in different time and different schedules for people. That's really important and doesn't get talked about because I worry if we frame it as helping the quiet people talk, that only furthers a stereotype and it's a little patronizing. You're right. Why are the quiet people any lesser? Right. You're right. It's not. And I shouldn't have said it that way because I'm one of those people that you're talking about. I love. Look, I have a radio show. I love to talk to people. I actually get excited in meetings. And I um, I think I'm one of the only people on the planet who likes a meeting. That's weird. I know. But um, I because I enjoy the intellectual discourse. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I can find them enormously exhausting. And if I'm going to bring my and part of what I've learned recently is if I'm going to bring my best self to those social, public, highly interactive arenas, they need to be balanced by quiet time for me where I recharge and regain my energy. And so it's not you're right. It's not um, about quiet people, but it's giving people who can lose their energy or get stressed by the hyper social visible settings. antidotes to it in ways and at times when they need it. Is that a better way to put it? That's right. And, you know, one other thing is, is, is you know, we had talked before about dominance, and mm-hmm. I think that it also comes back to dominance. I mean, and this is, again, not necessarily about introversion or extroversion. You know, I meet younger people, younger women, um, people who struggle against a dominant culture, which in a meeting really can roar its ugly head, right, who yeah. don't get heard. And so I think that that's another thing. I mean, I'm an introvert. I don't mind talking, but I have a hard time with, like, spur-of-the-moment brainstorming. It mm-hmm. makes me really squirmy. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> right? And so I've had to learn how to get around that. But I also have talked to young women who've had to really figure out how to hack their meetings. Some end up actually running them because otherwise they just don't get heard. And so their bosses have worked with them, thankfully, to let them get heard. 
By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Maura Aaron Neely, the author of Hiding in the Bathroom, an introvert's roadmap to getting out there when you'd rather stay at home. If you'd like some tips for how to speak up when you're feeling intimidated in a meeting, when you don't know how to penetrate the dominant force that's holding you back, um, give us a call. We would love to talk about it. You can reach us at one 844 Wharton. That's 844-942-7866. And as we said before, you can always write to us if that's a more comfortable way to communicate. And you can reach us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And once again, you know, Julie from Cinnaminson, I know you're listening and I know you love to write. So send a note into Patty. You know, it'd be nice to make her get up and bring it into the studio anyway. So, (laughs) (laughs) So, Mara, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that Um, your personal experience was complex. It wasn't just um, introversion, that you've had to learn to navigate a a host of challenges that you understood with age so that you can be happy and well. Do you mind just sharing a little bit of what that was with our listeners? I'm a mess. I mean, (laughs) I continue to be a mess. I had a terrible panic attack actually giving a speech two weeks ago Um which really threw me for a loop, honestly, because it had been years. And I was terrified, humiliated, had to leave. So by no means is this journey complete. You know, I, um, like so many of us, because this stuff is really normal, I have anxiety. And it's anxiety that is sort of, I've accepted it now at 41, it's like with me for life. Sometimes <laughs> it gets better, sometimes it gets worse, but it's always there. We have a relationship. Um, <laughs> it's good that you're on a first name basis. You embrace it. Uh, we are intimate. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, my anxiety is my constant companion. It, it comes with me every day, especially at work. That's true for probably a third of the population, but it's hard for us to talk about. I, you know, I'm an introvert, but I also have a layer of social anxiety. Really silly things make me freak out, like sometimes picking up the phone to make a call. I, I have this fear that I'm going to get rejected, that I'm going to sound stupid. I just, I just want to hide. I can't even explain it. Like everyday acts of going to work, commuting. I have anxiety around transportation. I'm fear of, I have fear of flying. I have fear of tunnels. Sometimes being on the subway makes me anxious. Again, in this world, I don't think that's surprising, and many, many of us feel it. And so I think that, um, plus I'm sort, of, I'm sort of a hermit. I mean, I think that given my nature, I wouldn't leave the house a lot. And as I get older, frankly, that gets worse. And so sometimes I have to push myself, and my husband actually has to push me, like, okay, let's get dressed, like, let's, let's put some shower. <laughs> Which doesn't mean I don't love my work. It's just how I am. So. And, and and it's we're going to talk more about this um, when we get back from the break. But I do think what's surprising and also really important to note is that um, with all of the, with the many dimensions of your humanity that you've just described that make you real and like so many of us, you're still having an exciting and thriving career where you're actually making a difference in the world. So we need to take a short break, but stay with us. After the break, Maura and I are going to talk more about how she continues to do all these amazing things with her companion anxiety by her side. Um, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be back in a minute. 
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and do it on their own terms. I'm your host today, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest is Maura Ahrens-Mealy, author of Hiding in the Bathroom, an Introvert's Roadmap to Getting Out There When You'd Rather Stay at Home. Um, Maura, welcome back. Hello. Hi. Before the break, um, you were talking with us very candidly and uh, about your companion of anxiety Um, the emotional stuff that is real for you, it's part of who you are and that you carry with you. Um, And I was really, I want to say I'm really grateful for your trust and openness about it because I think there's so many people that um, live in a similar way and we don't talk about it openly. Mm. Um, Given that you're now sharing this in increasingly public ways, how is being vulnerable in public affecting you? I've thought a lot about this and um, it was funny. I, I had a moment where, you know, I've, I've been sort of going around the country doing book events and, and talking to people and hearing their stories. And um, it occurred to me because everyone says the same thing about me. You're so candid. You're, <laughs> you're so vulnerable. And I don't feel that way. I mean, I'm not telling tales out of school I'm not being inappropriate. Like, I definitely had my husband read the book (laughs) before I put it out. Um, (laughs) But you are saying things that the rest of us are often afraid to say. Well, and what I realized is it is my privilege that allows me to say these things. And that is, in a way, what I can do, if that makes sense. Tell me more about what you mean by privilege. I mean privilege in so many ways. I mean privilege in the fact that I'm a white woman. I mean privilege in the fact that I was born upper middle class and went to not only college, but, you know, Ivy League schools and private school. I mean, I mean privilege in the fact that I am, you know, heterosexual and married and have three children, which is something that I think certainly with the women at work discussion, you know, almost when certainly with young women makes them think, oh, well, she's crazy, but, but she like found someone to love her. And you know, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Um, no, I'm sort of laughing with understanding and delight because you're itemizing things that have given you the opportunity to have access to good work, to good education, to understand yourself, and to be embraced. So I, I think I understand what you mean. Yeah, I mean, let, let me just put it this way. If it felt as hard for me to deal with my mental health issues and my emotions and my struggles with my incredible fortune in this world, what would it have felt like if I hadn't had that? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like for people of color, for women of color, for, you know, all the many groups that don't fit the dominant paradigm. Um, My friend Nilifer Merchant wrote a great book called Onlyness, you know, and she talks about this, that if you don't fit the dominant paradigm, and actually what's funny is she she talks about white men who don't fit the dominant paradigm, but fake it, right? (laughs) Right. Um, 
And it's a challenge for for men who are having an alternate experience and they're not – as women, um, it's often more acceptable for us to be expressive about emotional issues than it is for men. A hundred percent. And that's been another aha moment from from my book experience. But but anyway, you know – how hard is it for people who aren't, you know, wealthy, white, upper middle class, educated, right? right. <laughs> and so, and so, I just I want to be honest about that. And I and I and and it, once I realized that, and also I'm I'm 41, I've had my children, I've I've gotten married, I'm at a phase in my career. I don't work for other people, so I can have more of an fu mentality, right? I, I thought about <laughs> right. this before I wrote this book, like. <laughs> I couldn't get fired. Some of my clients could fire me if they felt uncomfortable about what I talked about. But I think that would be okay at this point. Like, I've been in business a long time. So, you know, I want to touch wood right now because I feel like a meteor could hit me. But, um, <laughs> right. But it's <laughs> also something coming in. <laughs> it's also something, um, dare I say, that you've earned. That because you've... Um, built your career and your business and gotten to this place, um, granted buoyed by those privileges, um, you have the opportunity to safely speak from this platform. By the way, we have a call coming in. And if anybody else would like to join us, um, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And Barbara's calling from Long Island. Barbara, thanks for listening to Women at Work and dialing in. Uh, What's on your mind today? I just wanted to say um, thank you for your book. I think it's awesome. And I think a lot of our um, younger girls, I have a 25-year-old, 21-year-old, and a 14-year-old. And I think there's a lot of anxiety in women and young women today that really, like, really could use a book like your book because it's just so real, you know. And it's our life experiences that make, you know, uh, that you came up with this book. It's awesome. And I just think we should share it with our young women of today. Um, I'm a mom of 52, breast cancer survivor, just opened up my own business. And so now my girls see me doing this, and they're like, oh, mom's doing it. Well, I might as well get on board and do it too. And I'm like, oh, my God, it took me to become successful. You know, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom, of course, but now I'm, like, off and running, and they're like, oh, putting pressure on, you know, just their thoughts of, well, if mom could do it, I'm like, of course you could do it. You could always have done it. You know, in this, this, I don't know, it's just that, that instant gratification, these millennials, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but um, I just think that, um, you know, we need more uh, books like your book, your real book, that, you know, could, you know, be shared with young women, young women. I think it's important that our young girls I have a 14-year-old, same thing, anxiety, she goes to boarding school, she's dyslexic, and and I think, oh, my God, you could do it. And now, you know, finally found out she could do it, and she's writing her third book. That's so amazing. Think, wow. Well, because of the environment she was put in, you know, I pushed her into an environment that was, you know, not the norm, talking about not the norm, and, you know, I guess it's my third child, and I'm like, I have one more shot, my prodigy. And, and, you know, she's off and running, but I just think we need, we need to inspire our young women, our young girls that are the future of our country and the future great taxpayers, you know. <laughs> right. And, well, and, I mean, Barbara, first of all, mazel tov on everything. Um, thank but, you. But, you know, well, you're welcome. Wow. But, but here's the <laughs> thing. The data on young women and anxiety is scary. I mean, what... I what, know. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's really 
sort of out of control, and I think that we all need to think about that. Yes. A, why? We, we have to blame social media, but we can't just blame social media. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, and, you know, and there is something, and Barbara, I so appreciate your calling to share all of this with us, and your girls are so lucky to have you cheering as a role model and cheering in their corner. So thank you for yeah, calling in. What about, what, a, what about the girls that don't have moms like me, you know? I, I well, really think that, you know, that's that's where we have to really touch base, you know, and, 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 and that, hit home with. And that's part of a question that I want to ask Maura. Um, so, Maura, in the book, one of the terms that you wrote about that I just loved was um, achievement supersizers and achievement porn and yep. how pernicious it is. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about what that represents for you and how we can deal with it? Because I'm hoping um, that it can help some of those girls out there if they start to incorporate this into their thinking early on. Well, I talk about achievement porn, and then I've also talked about entrepreneurship porn, which is my own particular bugaboo. <laughs> um, I hate it, you know, and you know, it's like porn. You know it when you see it. You know, it's the article about I, the mompreneur who whipped up a billion-dollar business in her kitchen just making baby food, right? Or, you know, the again, the tireless young entrepreneur who would take nothing, you know, who wouldn't take no for an answer and would stop at nothing. I mean, these tales and these narratives are very, very strong, Mm -hmm. and they affect us, and they affect people at a young age. You know, I got a pitch today, because I'm a blogger, I get a lot of pitches from PR people, and um, it was about the incredible growth of teen entrepreneurs. And at first, you might think, that's amazing, right? Wow, teen entrepreneurs. Right, go get them, girlfriend. Go get them. But you know what the flip side is? The incredible pressure on these teens to now become entrepreneurs, in addition to doing all the extracurriculars, starting nonprofits, having their passion. Right. And you what know, it means they're not doing. That's right. About and playing and relaxing and having other experiences and expanding themselves. Well, and having that quiet time, you know, yeah. being alone and thinking their thoughts because they're so busy doing. And, you know, Rick Weisbord at Harvard does a lot of research on this. I really recommend. And Frank Bruni at the New York Times has written about Dr. Weisbord's research. But the thing is, is this is having a pernicious effect, this incredible narrative of achievement that young people are now exposed Mm -hmm. to, and frankly, we are too, that make us think if we're ambitious, I better be like that. You know, when I was first a, quote, entrepreneur, it was so sexy. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Uh, oh, my God. It's so sexy, right? You're like, I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, you get invited places. There's events to go to. I mean, especially if you're in anything vaguely sort of techie. Um, it's really easy to lose the plot that, A, you got to earn a living, right? And <laughs> right. <laughs> B, what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? Why am I an entrepreneur? And I think that the whole culture of achievement porn is really pernicious because it can take people away from that intrinsic motivation of who am I really and what do I really want to be. And you see these young people who are trying, they're performing, right? I, I have a wonderful quote in the book, actually, um, from um, the writer Chimamanda Adichie, mm-hmm. who says, you know, we now perform pregnancy and motherhood, right? Oh, my God, don't watch we? and 
Facebook reveals, if we're so busy performing to try to live up to some narrative that is unachievable, how could we not be depressed and anxious? Well, it's also just the sheer experience of consuming other people's feeds, where um, somehow the tendency is that people are putting up a representation of a life that seems worthy of celebration. No, And we take it in, you know, I'm sitting on the train and there comes the Facebook feed on my email on my phone and I take a mm-hmm. look at it. And um, if I didn't hold on to my own ego and sense of self, I could really like want to jump off the cliff afterwards because it looks like everybody looks better, lives larger, does more, is happier, is succeeds thinner. more. Right. It's thinner, <laughs> has better boots. Their kids are happier. They're better mothers. And but it none of it really matters except that we're consuming it and it's making their way into our sense of self. That's right. That's right. And, and it is the point. I interviewed um, Cal Newport on my podcast a while back, and he's a computer scientist who studies this stuff. And he wants people to know that is the point of social media. It keeps us addicted. We have this, like, need, right, to click and see what everyone else is up to. And they are using us. And so we need to know that and step away from the FOMO. <laughs> but here's the pro tip, right? If, like me... You have chosen to leave the corporate workplace, but you still have to earn a living and you prefer to be alone and work from home. You need to learn how to use social media and cultivate some FOMO. <laughs> right, without being hurt by it. Well, exactly. I mean, this is, this is the task, right? But it is the most powerful marketing tool you have because, by the way, social media can be done from anywhere. You can blog from bed. So if you can cultivate the FOMO, it's a really powerful tool as a more introverted or hermit person. It's a really double-edged sword. We're going to come back to this in a second. But first, I want to note, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with the amazing Maura Ahrens-Mealy, author of Hiding in the Bathroom, an introvert's roadmap to getting out there. She also happens to be the founder of Women Online, which I highly recommend you check out. Um, if you have a question about what you're discussing, what we're discussing, you want to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you at one eight four four wharton That's 844 844- Nine four two seven eight six six. So, Maura, this is a critically important question. Um, the power of social media to help us advance our own brand. I'd like you to talk about it, but I'd be particularly grateful if you would talk about it in relationship to networking. And mm. um, I personally, I love connecting with new people. I hate going out with the purpose of networking. And it seems like I could avoid that altogether if I could get my act together online. Tell me how to navigate this. You can't avoid it altogether. I mean, real talk, you can't. Okay, fine. But <laughs> <laughs> the good news is you can cut out probably half of it, which I think is pretty good. That's a lot. That's a lot. So one of the things, again, that our culture of achievement porn and entrepreneurship porn has created is this tremendous industry, and it is an industry. It is a multi-gazillion dollar industry. There are over, I think, almost 200 professional conferences in the U.S. per day. Um, Never mind you know, how many books we get here at Women on Work. I, I can't even, right? And, and TED Talks and, and online telesummits, and hey, look, I get it. I mean, I'm doing all of them now to hopefully sell <laughs> my book. But, <laughs> but the point is, is that 
this is all part of the modern leadership culture. It is a construct that has been created now that we are expected to buy, which is that we must network all the time if we want to be successful. Now, look, I'm no, I'm no social network theorist, but that's, again, that's partially true. Certainly, if you're going to build a, build a sales pipeline, if you want to advance in whatever career you've got, you know, if you need to navigate growing within an organization, or if, like me, frankly, you live and die by new clients and word of mouth, you've got to have a network. And where this applies to women in a really amazingly powerful way is that traditionally one of the reasons why women have had less access, and we still do, less access to capital, less access to leadership opportunities, is that our social networks are much more bonded, right? Mm-hmm. Bonding it seems like such a female term, but what does that mean? It means that our networks are very tight. They're loving, they're close, but they're our friends. They're people who we know. They're not people who can introduce us to a new funder for our venture necessarily. Right. Men have much more bridging social networks. They have those fabulous weak ties. Right? I was going to ask, is this the strong ties, loose ties? It's strong ties, loose ties. And you know what's amazing in my book tour? It is those loose ties that have come out of nowhere and said, can I host an event for you? Can I do this for you? I have never seen it proven so true as in my own life these past two months. Not that my true friends haven't been amazing to me, but the sheer people who are a couple steps removed from my everyday network who have said, hey, do you want to do an event in Palo Alto? It's been amazing. This stuff works. And so women (laughs) have to have access to these Loose ties to these people who have access to other people who we don't know. So that can be hard. And it can be really hard to go out in person and be like, I want to meet some loose ties who are powerful and will give me access. Right, Especially especially if we're the kind of people who, when we go to a cocktail party, we like to find one person and have a really meaningful conversation. That's right. Or if we don't even, how do you get invited to that party? (laughs) (laughs) Those invites are hard to come by. Um. And this is where the Internet is amazing, right? Because, and not just social media. I mean, I'm old school. I still blog. I, I, I still believe in the written word. If you can think very, very hard and very precisely about exactly what it is you stand for and you want to say, I call it finding your niche, mm-hmm. and you can think of content to create around that. You know, there's this wonderfully popular theory of the blue ocean, right? If you're starting a business, how do you find that piece of unclaimed ocean that is also, you know, through modern technology, fairly easy to access? What's what's your little piece of the blue ocean? What do you do that only you can do? You know, my company, Women Online, is super, super niche. We only work with socially-minded clients, nonprofits, foundations, Mm -hmm. political campaigns or companies that want to reach women and want to use social media and online community to do it. This means we earn a lot less money than many other marketing firms. We don't get calls that a lot of other firms do, but we also don't compete with a lot of other firms. We own our piece of the ocean. If you are a social good (laughs) client and you want to mobilize women online, like, you could Google You're us, the right? Place, and right. Show. right. And so I really believe in this, especially, especially if you are 
one of those people who doesn't want to be schmoozing every night. You claim your hyper niche. You claim your niche. You create really good content and you use whatever medium you feel comfortable in to build your online professional brand. If you're a podcaster, if you're a writer, if you're a videographer, if you're a tweeter, if you want to just create a great website, think about that and start to carve out the space that only you can carve out and then find out who is influential in that space. This is what I do with my clients. No matter what the issue is, I literally go into Twitter. It could be a new environmental campaign. It could be a nonprofit that, that's focusing on autism. It could be a new product. I don't care. I literally take search words in Twitter, and I find out who's writing about it, who's tweeting about it, what are the key conferences, and that is my ecosystem, and I focus on that. And so I think that if you can take away a lot of the mythology around, oh, my God, I need an online brand. Oh, my God, why am I not on Instagram? Why am I not networking enough? And you can think about what are your goals, why you're networking, and how you can use a very specific approach to digital media to get there. It's a really good start. This is brilliant on multiple levels. Um, I remember a designer talking with me about that beauty of when you come up with solutions that solve three problems at once or advance three goals at once. That's really the one to run with. And that this approach, it's a way of thinking that we know that entrepreneurs need to have a certain discipline, to focus mm -hmm. focus on a minimal viable product, make sure that you're using your resources well, because otherwise you can just spread out too far too fast and get nothing done. And at the same time, what you're describing is certainly a way to craft. And you wrote about this beautifully in the book about how do you craft a business that works with the way that you want to live? Yeah. So that's an, an essential part of this by not trying to be everything to everybody, but by figuring what kind of like you have a boutique marketing firm. You have a small staff. <laughs> Super small. <laughs> but those are things that give you the room then to shape the whole work environment for you and your team. And well, then at the same time, you also get to find your part of the market that's really unique to you. And I want to say one more thing about that, Laura, because, you know, one of the things you can read my client list and it is super impressive. It's stunning. It's, right. But here's the thing. Back when I realized that I wasn't fit to be in the mix, I also, when I finally created my business, realized my husband ran a web company for many years and, like, would get calls at midnight on Saturday night, you know, because the website was down or the hosting fire facility caught on fire or whatever. And after my many years working in politics where you were expected to be on 24-7, I knew I could not live that way. And so I purposely have created a business, and again, not without its downsides, where we get to do the most incredible work with the most incredible clients, but we're a very small piece of it. We are always a couple steps removed from mission critical, although I think our work is very critical because we're amplifying whatever the cause is to a very important audience, mm -hmm. but it's not like we're running the website that's going to go down, right? If we're working on a political campaign, we're not in charge of, you know, the payment database when they're sending out email fundraising. And so that means we don't get calls on Saturday night. That means that we get to work on really fantastic campaigns, but maintain reasonable hours. It gives me as a business owner with an anxiety disorder a lot less stress. <laughs> right. And at the same time, it's letting you and your team do work that matters, that's satisfying, and lets you bring your best selves to work. 
That's right. All like that. that's sort of the holy, and you're paying the bills. It's like the holy grail. I think so. However, our contracts are smaller. We're not at the center. You know, we're not famous. So I want to be real about that because, again, there's no free lunch. But for us, it's been a wonderful way to figure out how to do meaningful work and yet do it in a way that sustains day-to-day life because, again, you work a lot. And so if you're not happy in the moment, it doesn't matter necessarily if you can step away and feel, oh, my gosh, I'm amazing. Right. And it reinforces that success can take on all different forms. And it's not a binary option of failure and success, that there are all different ways to live a meaningful and rewarding life and do good work. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, we're going to run out of time shortly. But if people want to learn more about um, you in general and your company, where can they find you? So if they want to learn about me in general, they can go to <laughs> hidinginthebathroom.com or they can go to um, my very old but looks great still. Yes, very <laughs> elegant. Blog. It's so old. It's womenandwork.org, all spelled out, womenandwork.org. Um, and my company, Women Online, is at wearewomenonline.com. And if you're an influencer and you want to sign up for fabulous campaigns that allow you to use your platform but also support social good, you can go to themissionlist.com, although that we are redoing, and that site's a bit shabby right now. Okay, and I know this is going to be a challenge, but in, you know, 15 seconds or less, what's the mission list? The mission list is an influencer database for women who have online platforms, whether they're bloggers or YouTubers or Instagrammers with audiences, but also care about social good and want to sign up to spread those messages. So hear that, everybody. Check this stuff out. Maura is doing really incredible work on all of these fronts. Maura, I can't thank you enough for joining us here today. Thank you, Laura. I'm such a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Right back at you. And of course, I'd like to thank my fabulous producer, Patty Hall. Happy belated birthday, Patty. Our sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. Our communications associate, Jackie Gaffney. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you have been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 111. Follow us on Twitter at BizRadio111 and me at Laura Zarrow. And have a great week, everybody. Thanks so much. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.